All right. Here we go. Quiet. Roll up. Hello and welcome to the Big Picture Podcast, where we take a look at the latest movie news, the films of today and yesterday, and put it all into some sort of context. Seated across the microphone from me is Film Buff Online contributing editor, Natasha Bogutsky. And seated across the microphone from me is Film Buff Online editor-in-chief, Rich Trees. How's it going, Rich? It's going pretty good, thanks. Um, I think I might have mentioned this before. But I'm in a bit of a quandary right now. Mm-hmm. I think I might have mentioned before that I, um, I've i been slowly going back and kind of going through all the episodes of the 1990s sitcom news radio. Yeah. And I'm, I'm about two or three episodes away from the end of season four. Um, as some folks may remember, after season four wrapped while they were on their summer break, um, Phil Hartman's fucking nutbag psychotic cunt bitch of a wife uh shot him to death while he was asleep and then turned the gun on herself um she did that in the wrong order she should have turned the gun on herself first and left left us with the great phil hartman the series went on for another season after that um they brought in John Lovitz to take over his, uh, not his role, but to play a character that was replacing Phil Hartman's character at the radio station. And I'm coming to a point where, I mean, I, my completest nature is like, watch the whole series. My love for Phil Hartman and my enjoyment of this show, I think, mm-hmm. is going to be severely hampered if I keep watching I, I I don't think I'm going to enjoy that that last season, even though I like everybody else on the series, and um, I don't know if I'm gonna really want to watch that fifth season uh, with him not there. Um, so so I'm I guess I'm kind of asking you what what you don't you don't have the uh the investment the emotional investment that i have into no, this no and i right don't now. even know who phil hartman is i'm literally googling him right now saturday night live veteran how much simpsons, snl have i actually watched simpsons voice actor for I watched decades zero simpsons growing up you're you're i'm sorry sometimes your your blind spots really surprise me it's comedy blind spots I'm not a comedy person. And Simpsons, I never really got into. Just like I never got into Family Guy. Um, and SNL, never watched any SNL mm-hmm. until like three years ago. I know. I got to I gotta get you more on some of the, the, and the, the stuff, historical stuff from the SNL. The stuff from 86 to 94 is not even on Hulu. So I can't even watch it if I wanted to. I'm actually looking to see if I know him from mm-hmm. anything right now. Okay. I know him from one thing, and I haven't even watched this movie in many years, but I vaguely remember him. Okay. I remember him in Jingle All the Way. <laughs> As Ted. Okay. Yeah, and that's a not not that's a smaller part um, that he had. You know, he just did so much in the '90s. He was fairly omniscient, you know, omnipresent through the whole '90s, and. 
he was very much one of the main voice people in The Simpsons in those early years until, you know, this tragic death of his. So so I'm kind of wondering, do do I want to even go on with that last um with that last episode or that last season or not? If it's just one more season, I mean it's not such a it's not the same. But I, I do fully admit that getting through the last season of West Wing was difficult for me because of I had just become mm-hmm. such a fan of John Spencer who played uh, Liam McGarry. Yeah, yeah, um, that's that's a great parallel. When when an integral cast member of a show leaves because of death, not because. I they're written think, off. Yeah, they're written off, or my char- or I don't think my character is getting enough to do, so I'm going to go do something else, um, which happened with another cast member on News Radio in at the beginning of season four. Uh, you know, things like that. You know, th- they're more easy to deal with, but those what? those sudden uh, death mm-hmm. things. Those well, are the when it happens near the end of the show. I think. In a weird way, you almost owe it to the show to finish it off. Okay. Be- and and owe it to that actor mm-hmm. as well. Yeah. And I see your point, but at the same time, I'm looking at this as like, does the loss of Phil Hartman affect the show? And that's why it ended that, you know, it only lasted one more season. And that's obviously something I really can't judge Without, without actually, then actually watch watching the yeah, damn I thing, I and know, then you'll just, be able I'm, to make a point. I'm not feeling uh, super excited about this this fifth season. I have like two more episodes. Have in you ever watched four. it? No. Then watch the damn thing, okay, so okay. you have an opinion. Okay. Yeah, you're right. Because I'm the one who's always like <laughs> about you. Don't do your homework. You can't uh, participate in the class discussion in yeah. terms of watching things. So. Yeah, it's just I'm I'm not looking forward to it, honestly. I think there's going to I feel there's going to be a hole there. And you know, I don't want to f- experience that same gut punch when I read the news about Phil Hartman because that was one of those things like every now and then you see like a celebrity death. You're like, "Oh, they were 92. You know, they were retired for, you know, 10 years. Bless them. They had a great life, a great body of work." And they had time to understand everything about how people liked them, and um, and then, but when it's something tragic like this, or um, you know, like the prince's passing, where it's just like, wait, what? And you're just kind of like pulled back because then it kind of hits you as like, but they were still creating; they still had more to give, and more that they wanted to create and put out there. And yeah, we're robbed of that, of course. Uh, but you know, obviously, their families are robbed of a loved one, which is the far greater tragedy. Always, anyone who's taken from us too soon, when they have so much unfulfilled potential, I think that's always going to leave a bit of a hole. Um, mm-hmm. Heath Ledger, Paul Walker, mm-hmm. r- most recently, the the big one that hit me, Anton Yelchin. Oh gosh, yeah, I know. Um, 
And even Robin Williams, yeah. Philip Seymour Hoffman. Yes. I would still, I to this day still consider Philip Seymour Hoffman one of the greatest actors who has ever lived. Indeed. Because he never gave a bad performance, not in any film he ever did. And I'm not sure why, and I'm thinking about this now, but for a, about two years following Phil Hartman's uh, murder, uh, there were just random moments where I'd be like, oh, crap, Phil Hartman's dead. It would just kind of pop back into my head and kind of just put me into a funk again about that for for no reason at all. Nothing, you know, like I wasn't like sitting there watching Saturday Night Live and that association triggered, you know, this memory. I'd be like at work, you know, just doing something and then, oof. You know, and then suddenly it would just pop into my head. Oh, yeah, Phil Hartman's gone. That sucks. This world sucks. You know, one of those random things and just being kind of bummed out about that. And I don't know why. I mean, I was a fan of his work. I wasn't, like, his number one fan. Uh, but I think just the the weird fucked-up randomness of his death, that his wife was just not mentally stable, unfortunately, and he was asleep and... And that was that. You know, I don't know why. And that's a long way around of saying the first four seasons of news radio are a lot of fun. Um, they have, Yeah, that got really depressing. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. Um, oddly enough, if you want to be cheered up, go watch them. Phil Hartman does great work. He's magnificently funny in this show. Well, that's a great way to sell a show. <laughs> God damn. I know. Go I know. watch someone that you they... know died violently. Oh, jeez. <laughs> Honor their work that way. Um, one thing I do like about news radio is um, it, you sometimes see in sitcoms where, you know, they kind of treat the situation mostly realistically and, you know, exaggerate a few little things here and there around the edges for comedy. And then there are times when a sitcom just starts going, nah, let's keep pushing that that edge of silliness, that edge of reality bending. And there are times when news radio really gets gets weird and funky. Mm. I'm still hung up on mostly realistically. <laughs> um, there was one... And you call yourself a writer. I know, I know. I know. That, I'm, I'm speaking extemporaneously, so it's not as considered as when i am sitting up in front of the keyboard just writing uh -huh. something i actually um I, i'm revisiting a show right now that i haven't touched in quite a while because i know that the last time either of us went through it mm -hmm. you went through it alone so um i'm on a downton rewatch oh okay yeah, I haven't. I don't think I watched Downton all the way through in many, many um, years. We have the the new movie coming out in December, or has it been pushed? It's back? It's been pushed back. Oh, I'm sorry. It's not going to be ready by Christmas. Okay. They, when they announced that it was production was starting like two months back, I, in the back of my head, I'm going, "This is not going to be ready by <laughs> Christmas Day, no matter how much you want to release it on Christmas Day." Which, if they could, that would be the perfect fucking time to release it is it a christmas story i wonder 
which no. which would be yeah no because I mean, it would be weird if that if they released a story that's centers in Christmas time and they had to push it back and release it in April I mean it may it may not I doubt that it is but it would be a perfect time to release it at Christmas because mm-hmm. Christmas is a family occasion yes. and it's also a time uh, between Christmas and New Year's I see a lot of older couples getting out of their house and going to the movies. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually see more of that during award season than any other time, but particularly between Christmas and New Year's because all of those awards movies are like in the cinema all at the same time. And they're more, they're, I don't want to say mature, but... They're the, more for them. Yeah. And and so it's kind of a way to kind of get out of the house and go see something where there isn't going to be a hell of a lot of action or a lot of sex or a lot of profanity, but just... A good story. And um, I'm sorry, I just started to think about Downton Abbey with a lot of profanity. Like, <laughs> those bloody bastards. <laughs> what the fuck are you doing down in the kitchens? <laughs> you know? Something. Uh, I, I've, it's been a little while since I watched it, so I can't kind of like latch into like a certain character freaking out. But Thomas. Yeah, yes. Yeah, <laughs> no, Thomas is too cool. He's too cool as a cucumber to do that. Um, Mosley. Yeah. Mosley doesn't have a lid on him sometimes. Uh, calling, yeah, he's calling somebody a complete see you next Tuesday. Yo, or honey, when he did that, your majesty, it's been tonight's meal has been prepared by the Downton chef. And I was just like, that whole, we're going to hold on Mosley and hold on Mosley until we can feel the just... Oh, of his act. <laughs> yeah. Was one of those moments of going when he went the when he did the It was a, that was an oh fuck. I could hear <laughs> in the back of his head. What did I do? I just lost my position. See, they can they can do profanity without actually saying it. Mm-hmm. They can act oh fuck instead of saying oh fuck. Yeah. That's that's what makes it classy. <laughs> <laughs> but um no, it it would be the perfect time because you could take Downton is a story for all ages. Mm-hmm. And it can be boring for your your kids and your teenagers. I started it as a, a probably when I was in middle school. So it's going to definitely hit to a certain demographic more than others. Yes. But you can still introduce them young and hope that it catches on. True. But you can go, let's take grandma and grandpa and you and I and and we'll take the kids and we'll just go together because it's an experience that we can have all as one. Yeah, the kids may not like it so much as we will, but there is something literally for everyone. The, your little your little girl might enjoy um, the costumes. Your your little boy might look at those cars and go, "Cool." They're really old and dusty, but they're in good condition. I wonder what they are. Like you never know what you're going to find well, in yeah. these that's going to yeah. reach to. I mean, my God, when. Um... My parents took me to see Chariots of Fire when it came out in what seventy nine, eighty. So I was like ten or one. eleven years yeah. old, and I was like, "Angela's score is pretty good." Yeah. Oh, and that thing was like omnipresent on the radio. <laughs> da, 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 yeah, and there was you know, yeah, the parodies on TV of people running in or 
you know, pretending to run in slow motion <laughs> and then tripping and falling in, you know, <laughs> in, in actual speed, you know, and stuff like that. Um, and stuff like that, you know, it was it was a cultural moment. And I think, well, obviously, I'd already lived through like Star Wars becoming the cultural zeitgeist, you know, mm-hmm. when you're eight years old and becomes everything. Yeah. Um, I would say this was like one of those like smaller moments. Yeah. And I and I'm it's not until and I'm just kind of processing this now, actually, um, how as a kid I became aware of how these things kind of like, oh, the music from the movie and everything, how it kind of impacts into the culture. And as a I don't know when whenever this came out, like I was 10, 11 years old, um, I remember sitting with my parents at uh the dairy street eric twin in Har- outside of harrisburg uh which is no longer there it's now a um, a home depot or something they put they knocked down the building and put up a you know hardware store i remember sitting there and i'm like i am not gonna like this movie think <laughs> thinking this uh because you know i was like eh, it's a bunch of people who run but i still found myself being drawn into the movie mm-hmm. um and then I went back and rewatched it in my like mid twenties, and there was so much more in there that I was like, "Oh, okay." The one of the reasons you know this character was having an issue was because they were Jewish. I didn't even get that, although we had, you know, a I lived in a very wonderfully integrated area of the Harrisburg suburbs, uh, Susquehanna Township, where you know we had you know a lot of Jewish kids in our school. We had a lot of uh, you know. White Anglo-Saxon Protestants and Catholics, and uh, we had, you know, a lot of uh, African-American families as well. And, I mean, it was to the point we had enough Jewish kids in our school that they gave us Jewish holidays off. We had Yom Kippur and Rosh Hashanah off because if all those Jewish kids stayed home, it would be about 40 or 45 percent of the student population mm-hmm. and they wouldn't be able to really teach us anything that day anyways because they mm-hmm. just have to repeat everything the next day. So, you know, I always had that, and I kind of credit that in a certain way, that kind of upbringing. But I'm getting off topic from uh, from younger kids yeah. being exposed to more adult material and not adult in the terms of sexual content or things like yeah. that. And, uh, and you were talking about cultural moments. Downton is definitely a oh, gosh, cultural yes. moment. Yes. It is one of those few period dramas that has uh, transcended mm-hmm. its genre. I mean, when Downton Abbey ends up in a Marvel movie, I'm not kidding. <laughs> Iron Man 3, when Happy is in the hospital, uh, Tony Stark puts it on for him because Happy enjoys watching it. Mm-hmm. There is something for literally everyone in, in Downton. And I think it's just such a great story um, about mm-hmm. class, about uh, corruption, about politics, about standing up and making a difference in the world. Um, it, there's a lot of history that's kind of packed into that. Mm-hmm. It, it, there's just. Uh, yeah, of course, you've got your romance and you've got Maggie Smith always <laughs> having a good snipey one liner. If that's not worth it, nothing is. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so um, I'm thoroughly enjoying I think I'm on like episode five of the first season mm-hmm. at this point. I was um, 
I was watching the Mr. Pamuk. You you know what I, what yeah, scene I'm yeah, talking yeah. about. <laughs> that was everywhere when that that episode aired. I remember waking up going, "What is this Downton Abbey thing? And why am I hearing about it on Good Morning America?" And <laughs> Lady Mary has someone in her bed, and they screwed, and then all of a sudden he's dead, and they had to carry him back to his room <laughs> in the middle of the night while everyone was asleep. Like, why is this so... And then I always sat down and watched it. I went, oh. This this was the uh, non-graphic version of The Red Wedding. (laughs) It was just that scandalous. Mm -hmm. And I was like, what the fuck just... And it comes out of nowhere. Anyway, I was watching it again the other day. And uh, it was like watching it for the first time. I had the same reaction. Really? Yeah, I was. I, I knew it was coming too, mm-hmm. but I had missed. I, I'd forgotten like a couple of scenes here and there, and a couple of really good lines that lead up. And I was just like, "Oh, oh, why is this hitting just as hard as I remember?" <laughs> when I know it's coming, mm-hmm. um, and I think that's a testament to its storytelling and its performances and yes. and its filmmaking ability. Mm-hmm. But um, we're getting way off track from the thing that we actually want to talk <laughs> well, about. Well, actually, I was going to say, yes, you're right. Um, well, we always have our little chit-chat here at first. Um, but Things that still hit you the first time around? <sighs> yeah, I like that. Uh, no, And, I mean, and, and it's kind of a parallel to my situation. You know what's coming up in Downton Abbey, but it still hits you a certain way. I sort of know what's coming up with news radio. And I'm kind of dreading that I might be going through some of that same sadness about Phil Hartman's death again. Yeah, but some of that. In some fact, of it, you as, don't as, know as what's I've been thinking about it, this last finished half finished that final season. That's true. I know I still have some more joyous performances from him to experience for the first time. Yeah, there's a, there's a I whole there's, unknown section. I know there's a there's an end to that though. There's there at at some point I will have consumed all of the uh, uh, Phil Hartman. Uh, episodes I have I think... available to consume. And this is sort of why also, and I've said this before too, you know, I, I've read everything Doug Adams has ever written, one of my favorite authors from growing up, with the exception of one small piece in um, one book uh, called The Salmon of Doubt, which was a compilation of some of his articles and essays and studies. And I can't bring myself to read that last piece. Because when I do, then there will be no new Doug Adams for me. And that sounds like a slightly emptier universe. Uh, there are there are definitely a couple of shows where um, the last couple of moments, I cannot bring myself to, to watch them. Mm-hmm. And it's because I know that when it's over, uh, it's over. Yeah. Um, but I often do that with shows that I don't ever really want to go back and rewatch from the beginning like for example 13 reasons why mm-hmm. that is it's it's a harrowing show to watch it will at every opportunity has the chance to completely rip your heart out mm-hmm. um it, it it i think that it has some things that it needs to say and it says very well mm-hmm. um but at the exact same time, that whole 
final episode, which is like an extra half an hour to an hour long, um, I've only been able to get through like half of it. Mm -hmm. And uh, with within the first half hour, a main character dies of AIDS. Oof. In that final episode. And uh, the rest of it is like the coming together of everyone. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, I can't handle this last half hour. I'm I'm done. <laughs> I, oh, no, I understand. Um, but at the same time, there are times when you know a series is going to give you a cathartic, emotional, good cry release at the end. Yeah. Um, that I, whole show is giving me that. I don't mm -hmm. need that last half hour I mean, in the, order to... The Good Place, mm -hmm. which I I thoroughly loved. I thought it was amazing. That first season twist was, you know, just knocked me out. The writing on that was witty and funny and smart and deep and made me think as, as hard mm -hmm. as I laughed. And in that last episode, there, you know, it reached a certain point where I just started crying and that was it. I cried for the rest of the episode because it just moved me and and there were things that were happening that I just some things I didn't want, some things I knew had to happen. Um Yeah, it, 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 it it's beautiful. Some, it's a beautiful thing. And I it was such a great release. And there are other shows that I've used as a release too. The end of um oddly enough, Babylon Five, that very last episode is is an entire meditation on endings in terms of the, and and death. Yeah, the final episode of Penny um, Dreadful for me is that's one of them. Yeah, and last year after a very good friend of mine had passed away, I sat down and you know I had done a lot of just crying and emotional purging over that Lord of the Rings. Uh, for yeah, and you know I watched like the the last part of Return of the uh, Return of the King. And then um, I watched the end of uh, that last episode of Babylon Five, and um, and those really help, like just get a lot of that out. Um, and I mean, I'm still, I think, on certain terms, dealing with my friend's passing, um, and not just because every now and then he would call and give me notes on a show here, um, but. Um, but those kind of things, uh, you know, film and certain TV shows do help us process, I think. And I think that's what's very fantastic mm -hmm. about them. Yeah. Yeah. That final episode of Penny Dreadful always gets me like that when I, when I need to, mm -hmm. to get it out. It just. Let's kind of take a switch, though. Yeah, we've looking... been really depressing all yeah, episodes. Yeah, sorry. If um, you've turned... Um, yeah, so let's switch from looking backwards to looking forwards. A year from now, the end of August, you will be in Paris for a week with uh, your wonderful husband. Yes, I will. You will be off having adventures. Yes. And buying me cool uh, souvenirs to bring back, right? Uh <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> Just don't buy anything. I mean, yeah, I would love to have something to eat at Lottery in Paris. But 
if you buy me something and then try to transport it back like three days later when I get it, it's probably no, not going to be as good. What I'll probably do is I'll go <laughs> in and I'll have something ordered and shipped to you. Ooh. Please do. <laughs> that sounds expensive, but <laughs> I still would like it. <laughs> um, you'll get like a whole box of macarons and like a really nice container, and you'll with be with dry sitting. ice and everything. So when I open it up, it just like this really cool magical smoke. <laughs> Steam comes out. And I'm like, ooh. And maybe there'll be flower petals in there too. <laughs> yeah, and it's like six macarons, and for all of that, it costs you like a hundred bucks <laughs> to ship it and everything. <laughs> Worth it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, thank you. Um, Paris. <laughs> but anyways, yeah. so a year from now, you will be in Gay Paris. Oui. <sighs> so um, we thought that today would be a good time to uh, look uh, back at a movie that came out 25 years ago, set in Gay Paris. Ah. And we mean the Disney adaptation of The Hunchback of Notre Dame. Oh, <laughs> I am really glad you suggested this one. Um, really? Yeah. I I know you get a little antsy when I suggest like Disney movies. I know. Well, we've done a we've done a number of them at this point. Yeah. Um, it took me a while to get you into them. I think it was Atlantis that really <laughs> finally went. No, okay. I thought, I thought we had a good um a really good uh, discussion with uh what Cinderella? Sleeping Beauty. Sleeping Beauty. Sleeping no, Beauty. Well, we also didn't we do the live action Cinderella at one point? No. The, the one with Lily James? I think we watched it, but I don't think we talked about it here. Anyways, um, I when that movie came out, I was still working in retail. I was a department manager for electronics department in a retail uh, store. Kmart. Well, yeah. Okay. <laughs> and I hadn't seen Hunchback in the theaters. And when it came out on videotape, we usually would throw like the new Disney film into the wall of TV, you know, the VCR that ran the wall of TVs, you know, yeah. when I wasn't sliding in like uh, something like Star Wars or something like that. Um, so I had seen bits and pieces of Hunchback. I had never sat down and watched it from start to finish. You've never seen it? I, I, and I thought I had. At some point. And then I sat down on um, a Friday night to watch it. And I was like, oh, I've never watched this. It, it suddenly occurred to me. I've never seen it straight through. You know, I'd throw it in, press start, you know, and then go about my day of like arranging the shelves mm -hmm. and putting out new displays and waiting on customers. And if I had a couple of minutes, I'd, you know, kind of glance back at the TVs and go, oh, that looks like fun or that looks interesting or whatever. And... <laughs> but I never had a chance to really watch it and pay attention, and really dig into it. This is what I would say. And this is the darkest, yes, Dis animated Disney movie they ever made, probably outside of the Black Cauldron. Um, I'd say this I is would, darker than the Black Cauldron. This is this is pretty dark, and I was thinking this is giving, um, in terms of darkness, it's giving Lion King a run for its money. Oh God, yeah, yeah. It, the Lion, Lion King is hey fratricide. We how about infanticide? <laughs> yeah, this thing's got oh yeah, unrepentant murder. Um, uh, yeah, okay, yeah. religious persecution, religious persecution. Uh, kind of a bit of genocide. The way he wants to get rid of the gypsy problem. Oh yeah, quote unquote the gypsy problem, and. Um, how many other Disney movies really kind of get into a have a villain that's motivated by um, lust, uh, sexual lust? 
actually in the book, um, Frollo is the archbishop of the church. Exactly. And his brother is the one who brought the baby to him, and he was the judge. Mm-hmm. And that's what when you know when I first heard you know back in the nineties that they were gonna I I think I read Hunchback at some point in like high school or junior high, and when I'm like they're gonna make Hunchback a Disney movie? How do you even do that? Oh, okay. You you take out the church element as much as you can, yeah, while still having it in Notre Dame Cathedral, and you make uh, certain um, that Esmeralda survives. Yeah, because <laughs> she does in in yeah. the story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I have a I have a slight qualm to pick about that, but we'll get to that in due course. Um, so so I could see why you know it was like yeah okay we'll make Frollo the judge, and but he's still driven by that same mm-hmm. um, desire twist twisted version of his religion though, you know that everybody's sinful and I must cleanse them all and. As the bells start ringing. As the bells at the church across the street start ringing. I'm not sure if the mics are picking this up or not, but this is this is the uh, perfect French chef's kiss. Perfect time. Sing the bells. I did bells, not time bells. the recording today for this, I swear. Um, but they kept the core of the character of Frollo still there. Mm-hmm. So... Obviously, I can see why some religious groups were upset because yeah. it makes us look bad. It's like, well, look within and figure out why you think that makes you look bad. And, and one of the things I loved about it is he has this, you know, this absolute des- desire of genocide, of getting rid of these people who are corruption on the entire city and on him. Mm-hmm. But within that, his lustful sinful desire for one particular gypsy there's it yeah. turns to complete obsession yeah, there's that hypocrisy there yeah. yeah and um and the idea of how she corrupted him the way all the other gypsies corrupt the rest of the town and mm. it's yeah there's <laughs> just so much to delve into in this film and i have to say hellfire is the best disney villain song ever written yes um, I don't think a lot of the songs in this movie are hits. Really. Uh, you know, the I way think the some score other is fantastic. The score is fantastic. These songs are really good, but they're very they feel like very Broadway theatrical songs as opposed to some animated Disney films where they feel more like like Hakuna Matata is definitely a a musical style yeah. song, but it also feels like a bit of a pop tune. Mhm. Um, obviously, once you start dragging Elton John in to uh, yeah. write stuff for your for of your movies, gonna that's going to shift what those songs are. Here, they felt very much like out there is fantastic. Uh-huh. Uh, God help the outcasts. Yeah, they're they're all very Broadway yeah. uh, style songs, and which part of, that of me time was, like, was kind I'm of. Like, yeah. They, and part of me was thinking, have they tried to mount this version onto Broadway or not? I can't remember. Yes. The, oh, they did. I have, the, I have the cast recording. Okay. Patrick Page, who plays Hades in Hades Town, plays played Frollo. Oh wow! And okay. he's got a hell of a like a deep, deep yeah. voice. Mm-hmm. So, and um, they kept the songs, but took it back, and they made Frollo. The priest. 
Esmeralda does die. Wow. Yeah. They, they shifted the story. They combine the two together in this beautiful just concoction. Mm-hmm. Um, it was an off-Broadway show. It didn't actually make it to full Broadway. And it's because of its thematical issues, I guess you could say. That and mounting that on Broadway is a hell of a yeah. Well, yeah, technically sh- trying to do that show, mm-hmm. um, you it's, know, I'm it's... I'm sitting there watching this, going, okay. And I hate that part of me, you know, during the time I'm watching this, I'm enjoying it, I'm mm-hmm. not distracted by it. No. But part of me is thinking, well, okay, if they did this on stage, how do they do this, mm-hmm. or how do they do that? The uh, when the rights were released for local theaters to start doing it mm-hmm. uh, about four or five years ago, it was done for about four or five times in this area within like oh, really? a year. Yeah, it was just like everyone jumped on the on the wagon and let's do Hunchback because mm-hmm. Hunchback is just such a goddamn good show. Oh yeah, I will definitely agree with you there. Um, uh, but. In terms of the voice cast here, though, fantastic. Tony J as Frollo totally blew me away. Mm-hmm. Just uh, evil, icky menace coming <laughs> from him. Um, oh, oh, I wanted to circle back one thing real quick, though. Yeah, uh, in terms of uh, Frollo's character, though, uh, and what a twisted version of I'm supposing is some kind of like generic Christianity about it because. You know, growing up Catholic, you know, you always had that uh, God is forgiveness. You know, there's if you repent your sins and stuff like that. He wasn't willing to give any of his victims. And let's face it, anybody he persecuted was a victim. Um, He wasn't willing to give them that chance, which makes his, you know, alleged piety all that more hypocritical and disgusting to me. And that's I think that he's kind of more thing. old school Catholic Christian. Like we're talking Inquisition style. I yeah. think that's how, well, what yeah. he well, was those... raised and reared in. Uh yeah, they I would There's like a fine line between the two. Yeah. And I think he leans yeah, a little more. He's much into more that. Spanish Inquisition. And no one was expecting that. And uh, <laughs> fucking hate yeah. that one. Um, I was totally expecting it. I know. Um but but at the same time, in high school, at Catholic high school, the nuns were kind of like, this isn't Catholicism. You know, this was a warp- warping of Catholicism. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so even now, you know, modern day Catholics, I think, would still uh, hold to the idea that what happened then is not a demonstrative of of the religion. And so Frollo obviously wasn't. And... That kind of thing is one of my big triggers of like, I just fucking hate you. (laughs) If I see stuff like that, if I see religious people abusing their religious authority to be bigoted, Mm -hmm. that's one of the things that really just sets me off. And you know this about Oh, God, yeah. And (laughs) But I love how we're talking about the Hunchback of Notre Dame, and we've been talking about Frollo this entire time. (laughs) Can we talk about like the rest of them? Well, yeah. First of all, let's get to Tom Holtz. Tom Holtz is so good in this. This and, is like at the height of Tom Holtz's popularity of Amadeus and Frankenstein. And, mm-hmm. Like this was smack dab in the center. Yeah. Of that. Uh, Amadeus was a few years before this. Well, but, yeah, but I mean, he was still riding that wave. Yeah. Yes, definitely. And, you know, definitely a far step away from 
when we first met him cinematically in Animal House. <laughs> As someone who just recently rewatched that, yeah. Mm-hmm. No, there's a there's a, a beautiful naivete to his portrayal of Quasimodo. Mm-hmm. Um and so when he gets hit with that semblance of betrayal in our third act, it just it rips you to shreds oh, because gosh, yes. he is such a hopeful individual. He's been so segregated from everyone his entire life that his head is literally in, in the, the clouds. Cl- yes, exactly. <laughs> which which brings me to a question that I had. The gargoyles. Are they a figment of his imagination? I There's like one moment where one of the gargoyles, you know, blows a raspberry at the goat or something like that. Yeah. And outside of that, I sort of felt like the gargoyles be just become stone statues when anybody else is there. And that made me start to think, well, are they a figment of his imagination? Are they, you know, his, for lack of a better word, are they his Jiminy Cricket? Are they his conscience I think trying so. to push him forward? I, th- I think there are different facets of his personality. Mm-hmm. So you have your rebellious one, your wise one, your stern one, mm-hmm. and all of those kind of, yeah, they play a Jiminy Cricket cricket vibe and of course they're because it's disney and the magical realism of this of course we're going to see them brought to life um but they are only ever there to help him whenever anyone else is around they don't exist so i would say yes okay and i love the casting on the three of them obviously jason, jason alexander, alexander you know we're in the middle of seinfeld mania so yeah <laughs> you get him in there because he's a great name marquee um charles kimbrough uh, is fantastic on Murphy Brown, which was on the air right around this time. And, um, you know, playing kind of that same stentorian uh, stick-up-his-ass prig <laughs> that he plays on Murphy Brown a lot, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but then they got Mary Wicks. and I, I love Mary I Wicks. I did not know she was in this. And I've kind of been on like a She's little so good in this. Mary Wicks kick, just, you know, thinking back on her career and stuff, because <laughs> it goes all the way back into like the 50s. And... I was sitting there. I'm like, wasn't she in like one of the Sister Act movies? Yes, she was in Sister Act. Um, I think both of them. Um, I'm trying to remember. I, you know, there's so much that she's done over the years. But she was she was so in the the movie version of The Music Man. She's been in. Um, I think she was. Was she one of the nuns in Angels? Uh, Where Angels Go, Trouble Follows. Um, I never saw it. Okay, uh, that was shot down outside of Philly in the sequel, actually, where. The it's all about a, a girls' Catholic school and like the girls get into some trouble and um the one nun in the first movie is kind of like your cool hip progressive <laughs> nun who goes to um like anti war protests in in, in downtown oh, Philly and gets arrested and stuff like that. It's a cute comedy, and then the sequel shows them going on like this road trip across country and mm-hmm. and so there's a lot of footage that they shot just of the Pennsylvania Turnpike. <laughs> Uh, the stretch that we drive to get to Philadelphia. Oh, I know what you're talking about. But it's all from like ni- the mid 1960s. <laughs> so like the one tunnel is just the two lanes, and that's it. This is not the two separate tunnels for north and south. They stop at an amusement park, which is Dorney Park outside of Allentown. And so you, if you ever want to see what Dorney Park looked like in the mid 60s. That's the movie to watch because it looks a lot different than obviously than what it looks like now, and even it looks a lot different than when uh, John Waters shot there for Hairspray. 
So, um, um, but no, sorry, I'm I, like, I think, um, Kevin Klein and Demi Moore have great chemistry as Phoebus and Esmeralda. Mm-hmm. I don't know if they recorded together or not. I couldn't find that, but I've but you're seen right. Some of the videos, and I believe that uh, Phoebus and or Kevin Klein and Tom Hulse may have done some stuff together. Um, mm-hmm. But well, I they, don't they know. bounce off of each other really well too. Yeah, I, I am a huge Kevin Klein fan. Oh, so am I. And, and uh, you know, always I was since you know, like the January Man when that came out in like 1989, whenever that was, and. Um, uh, and, I think it was Sophie's uh, choice for me. Okay. Depressing fucking film. Don't ever, don't ever <laughs> We're trying start to keep your it light. Remember, I know, but don't ever start your day by watching <laughs> Sophie's Choice because the first time I watched it, I watched it at like six a.m. in the morning. What? I know. I, I had to watch it because I had a bit of a, a time uh, time limit on it, and I've been putting it off and putting it off. So I finally got up and I watched it early before going to work, and it ruined the rest of my day. Oh, gee. Well, yeah. <laughs> um. But um, um, but uh, Kevin Klein strolls in, and <laughs> the second he opens his mouth, you're just like, hero. He's the hero. He's going to be the awesome guy. And yes, obviously, you know. He has his hero moments, but he's also a bumbling idiot, too, yeah, which I fucking love. I, I don't think he's a bumbling idiot so much as uh, just on occasion finds himself a little bit out of his depth. Yeah. Um, I mean – a bumbling idiot wouldn't have charged into that burning home and to rescue the people inside like that and and no, do I it mean, so heroically. Yeah, he's a hero. Yes. But he, he is, does have is, those moments. Yeah. Um and I was really I really enjoyed his stuff. Um and the fact that the scene God. where they uh they are fighting in the church him and Esmeralda. Mhm. <laughs> that's a fun that's, that's a, a fun, fun moment. Scene. Yeah. There, there's a lot of great char- little character moments. And the fact that he treats his horse, Achilles, like a dog. Achilles, for- sit. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, of course, it's – I mean, it's all in service, not so much of the sit joke, which we get twice. Or, you know, set up the one time and then you, it pays off during the finale. But also, as he's walking into Paris, mm-hmm. when he goes, Achilles, heel. <laughs> yeah yeah I, I i sat there i went i just heard the worst funniest <laughs> pun ever <laughs> oh i love that i i, I was sitting as like friday night as i'm watching this and i'm like laughing myself <laughs> like going, man if the landlord next door comes over and said what are you watching i can't say I'm watching a kid's movie I'm laughing myself <laughs> silly because i don't think this is really a kid's movie i think it's this is more suited for your like your Mid, middle school going into high mid middle school I would yeah. say I'm not sure I would show this to like an eight year old oh I watched it at four well and you're, I fell in love with it at your four. upbringing though is atypical yeah, but it's Disney so it's, most parents thought oh Disney's name is attached to it this is perfect for my kid yeah and then they get Frollo you know, yeah. the, the most co- psychologically complex and fucked up character in a Disney film. One of the best jokes in the film for me. It's a running gag that I fucking love and I'll occasionally do it where I'll be like, I'm free, I'm free. Dang it. <laughs> <laughs> the guy in the stockade. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's a great joke. There's some nice runners through this mm-hmm. movie. David uh, Augensteyers is Clopin. I want to talk about him for a sec. Okay. 
is he he's not just our narrator through this story mm-hmm. um but there is something off-putting about him not just because of the jester outfit do you understand what i'm getting at um dare i say it and maybe this is because of the joker outfit uh, the jester outfit he kind of feels like a version of the joker who is telling a story he might be an unreliable narrator for all we know um which which could explain why we get a happy ending instead of the victor hugo ending he always seems that unless it's benefiting him he will go to great lengths to be cruel Mm-hmm. Like there are moments where I feel like that is absolutely a possibility. He he's a wild card. He feels like a wild card to me. Uh, the the fact that he is so willing to uh, kill Quasimodo and Phoebus once they stumble into the gypsies' hideout mm-hmm. uh, without you know he just shoves uh, gags on them and is ready to hang them in front of everybody without benefit of anything. At that moment. And that's the only moment where you're kind of like, for a teeny tiny smidge, going, maybe Frollo has a point. Yeah. <laughs> maybe, the, maybe the insane, psychotic villain has a point with wanting to, you know. Well, there's not just that. It's also during the topsy-turvy segment when he's he he does not step in. He's just like, no, no, we asked for the ugliest face in Paris, and here it is. And they crown him, and then... Like, he pretty much says, no, he's perfect. Mm-hmm. But then when everything goes... And he holds he holds Quasimodo up to mockery. He does. Yes. And that... It, is, but, is he doing things that he believes are good, and then everything just goes sideways? I, I think that's more of a... St- seg- uh, uh, aspect of the storytelling because you need the crowd at that moment to be mocking and mm-hmm. jeering Quasimodo even if he doesn't realize it but between first. the two or so, three things so you have like... Qua- so you have Esmeralda coming forward mm-hmm. with that offer of kindness yeah yeah you need her to differentiate from the rest of the crowd so he has to that's kind of his function he has to by the way I love that the the meme has been going around for several years whenever something someone needs to stand up for something like for example like during the blm movement Mm -hmm. um the whole silence justice that has been going around for a while and i love that this film does so much to raise people up who feel like they don't have a voice Mm -hmm. to give them one yes and um which makes this movie you know uh, evergreen in a way it speaks to us now mm-hmm. in in different ways but in the same equal ways you know just a slightly different harmonic frequency of um you know than the story they were telling 25 years ago yeah now this ending though i understand it's a disney movie you can't let your disney princess die at the end <laughs> um i Almost would have liked to seen, and this would have been a better version than what they tried to do with Shrek. Um, I would have liked to have seen maybe Esmeralda end up with Quasimodo. Because um, he was the heroic one. He was the one who saved her, and she still falls for the pretty face. Even in the book, she always was for Phoebus. 
Mm. She never went for Quasimodo. Yeah. Always saw him as a friend. A, 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 her best friend. But it, it wasn't just the pretty face. It was... there's There was something about Phoebus that stood out to her. And maybe... Yes, he has a stout, honorable heart. Yeah, and I think True. that might be it. But so does Quasimodo. Quasimodo does, to, but, but we he saw has him that innocent... through that journey, too. Yeah, but he has there. that innocent naivety that is not does not feel secure when you are constantly um at the center of scrutiny mm-hmm. if she's going to be with someone who could not only stand by her side and but also protect her phoebus seems the the natural choice okay quasimodo is equally going to be you know, have things thrown at him as she is. Mm-hmm. And um, he is, yes, he's, he saved her in the end. But I've ne- I did not see any want of feeling between her and him. I think he, was- he, she, she actually kind of looked at him like a little brother. Okay. That's, uh, that's okay. what I saw on I, the rooftop. I, yeah, I think he was more reciprocal, uh, more... It was like, in love with her was, than she was with him I on, on a say, romantic level. I, I wouldn't even say in love. I, I feel like that was almost like his first crush. Because he had never had an experience outside of that where anyone mm-hmm. had shown him any kindness or he had ever met anyone True. else. True. Maybe, maybe I'm just conditioned by the fact that in Disney films, uh, most of the heroes and heroines don't have romantic histories. You know, the first person they kind of crush on when they meet in the movie is, you know, who they wind up with. So, yeah. so maybe, so maybe it's that. And um, I and I think that scene where uh, Esmeralda and Phoebus, Phoebus are think... fighting is your. It's not just your meet cute, mm-hmm. but we can see there's an equal footing. These two characters yes. are equals. Yes, and that's why they are more perfect for each other. True. We don't get along from the beginning. I almost don't even trust you, but there is something about you. You are equal to me, and that intrigues me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Although I, you know, just to kind of continue my uh, uh, d- virginal Disney character motif here for a moment, I do have the feeling that Phoebus might have uh, <laughs> had a few uh, encounters along the way as a soldier. Um, of course. But yeah, so so I kind of like that idea of like. You know, in most of these Disney movies, it is like, I, I, first love is yeah. greatest love or something like that. I'm I'm pretty certain That's that the she has as though. well. The way that they play her off, very sure of herself, sure of her sexuality, sure of mm-hmm. the world around her. She has some life experience. Yes. You don't get that from being virginal. I think she's virginal, but she knows how to use her sexuality and um, to... If anyone, I would say Quasi's the the stereotypical virginal character in this. Yes. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, and I think the way that you know, well, Frollo too, really. Um, no, I'm pretty certain Frollo's gotten down and dirty, but it, I, I, but there's no, that. I would, le- I would guarantee you though, if if it, that was developed had, for that character, it had to be it, in control. Nothing was consensual. Oh God, no. No, I guarantee you, he's probably raped women. Yes. And and 
how many other Disney villains can you even say that about? That's that's how complex this character the is. The way that they wrote him, he never looked at Esmeralda as a woman. He oh, looked she, at her as a thing. Yeah. He wanted gross. control over her. Mm-hmm. He wanted her, but he didn't want her willingly. Yeah. It, or if, basically, if, he, if he I mean, got some, her willingly, it sums up there, when was, he, there um, is a level of, I am the master and you are begging me. Yeah, it's summed up you. in that scene when she's about to be burned at the stake yeah. where he's like, look, either, you know, you know, Stand come up. with me uh, or I burn you alive. Choose me or the fire and she spits in his face. Yep. Exactly. And the score in that whole segment with the Gregorian chants and all that. <sighs> <laughs> It's such a great movie. It's so amazingly complex in terms of that. And I wish I had like a psychology degree because I could probably go for four hours. God, yeah. Yes. And also, this is one of those films I think that is going to stand the test of time. Um, Not just because of its themes, but when Notre Dame caught on fire about two and a half to three years Mm. ago, some people, you know, donated millions of dollars to its reconstruction and all that. Disney went inside the vaults, grabbed the blueprints from the drawings that they made during the making of this movie, and they sent them. Oh, wow. I did not know that. That's that's cool. That's amazing. Because when when they were prepping this, they yeah. sent all their sketch artists to Paris to sit outside Notre Dame and sketch every little bit of it. Mm-hmm. So they have all of that that was filed away in their vaults, and they offered that up because they understand that this historical landmark – has been around for more than 600 years, mm-hmm. and it is a symbol to that culture. And they want to ensure that it remains at least for another 600. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And looking forward to the future for this, I think that about wraps us up for this week. And remember, The Hunchback of Notre Dame can be found exclusively for streaming over on Disney+. Plus. Remember, you can find us online at bigpicturepod.com, and we are now available on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. So either use the link in the show notes post or head directly there, search and hit subscribe. And if you like what you're hearing, please leave a positive review, because that always helps us connect with new listeners. We'll be back next time with more news and reviews. And that's all right here on the Big Picture Podcast. Like fire, hell. This fire.